Golf is the, th- the only thing in golf that doesn't change. The only thing that changes is the person playing. Is this man a one-time winner on the PGA Tour? The point, Alan, is he didn't go Hollywood. You need a fourth? Before we get to this extremely entertaining episode with Gary McCord, who's quite a golfing original, we're just going to pay a few bills. We want to thank our corporate sponsors, Echo. I'm a longtime fan and advocate and proponent. Um, they're super comfy and stylish. But for, for Michael Bamberger, it's more than a shoe. It, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's almost a worldview. Michael? That's well said, Alan. Now, Alan, we've known each other a long time. You know all my moves. You even know all my trivia questions. I probably have posed this one to you before. And this relates. Did you mention Gary McCord? I did, but yeah, I was zoned out, but I thought you did. But when, when McCord came on tour, the term, the, the term of the art as it relates to a shoe was still very popular. Alan, it's the covering of the laces that used to be popular. And there's a reason why I'm going here. Do you know that term? And I think I probably posed this question to you before. It's like, it's like, it's like guilty. Guilty is correct. Now, I, now, Alan, you know, as you, as you indicated is, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a statement. My, my attachment to Echo Shoe is a statement on life. I just did Google Echo and Kilty. They do make a shoe with a Kilty. So hats off to Echo for keeping the old traditional life. Only you could be this excited about the Kilty. But we do love Echo Shoes. We thank them for their support. Now let's get to Need a Fourth with Gary McCord. Hello, this is Alan Shipnuck back for another Need a Fourth podcast. Uh, in which myself, co-host Jeff Ogilvy, Michael Bamberger, take turns surprising each other with mystery guests. Um, are the person that their name might be on their Zoom screen, perhaps uh, Michael and Jeff have not noticed this, but uh, I will say this. He, he's a winner on the Ben Hogan tour, and he's a winner on the senior tour, but not in the tour you'd play in between, hopefully. There, there's a vast middle of his career that's winless, but um, has made a great career for himself in TV. Um, Does this guy have a mustache older than you are in years? Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid <laughs> he probably does. The uh, yes, the most famous mustache in golf. Darn it, Bamberger's seen the Zoom. He knows who this is. Gary McCord, come on down. Hello, boys. There he is. <laughs> hey, Gary. What's going on? Thank you for doing this. You know, your name has come up in a few previous podcasts where uh, Brandel Chambly mentioned you. I, I think uh, Jeff mentioned that you guys played a lot of golf together back in the day. So why, why, don't, you, why don't you take us through your long relationship with, with co-host Jeff Ogilvie and, and tell us, give us a little dirt on the man, if you, if you would. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff showed up uh, <clears throat> from down under to Scottsdale, Arizona, and he showed up at uh, Whisper Rock. And uh, one of the young studs that were out there, so I got, I got to see him and know him many, many, many years ago, and, uh, and we had we had a great time out there. We were um, we were going at it. Now I was younger then, much younger, and I could play just a little bit, but uh, I never could handle Jeff. But uh, he was fun because all the young there's a lot of young guys we got 35 guys out there from the tour so a lot of young guys so you get to you get to watch their development and watch how they kind of go through their golfing life and their social life too uh because jeff lived there and we got to become pretty good friends and uh, we had a lot of good good fun out there a lot of good fun it's a fun place gary taught me how to play that's frightening. 
I, I would I wouldn't get that out. I would. No, nah, he was very competitive though. You were competitive. I mean, we. Uh, it was. It all started going downhill when you started whining that you needed shots. Well, yeah. I mean, it gets to the point. I'm know, going front tees. I need yeah, shots. Now that you know, hundred years old, and and you know, you're playing the way you were, um, and uh, and Kentucky, we just played. When did we play? Two months ago, three months ago, something like that. Yeah, two or three months and ago. You yeah, played your ass off. You shot sixty six or sixty seven. I shot like eighty five. So yeah, I need some strokes. I, I need some love. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of love. I've I've actually always wondered if in a in a, in a practice round if you're you know an aging Marco Mira and you're playing a practice round against peak Tiger Woods do you ask for strokes or what what is the pro code as long as you have a tour card you can't ask for strokes from another pro like how does that work well I just I'll give you at the Rock we all have our handicaps okay um, the the bad thing is like Jeff when he's playing on the tour I think they they allow like it's like one and a half points. Um, more his scores count because he's in competition. Okay. Now mine are not in competition and I'm out there. And my, my credo of that is it's not what you shoot. It's what you post. So if I'm going to go play Jeff Ogilvy and John Roms out there and all those guys, I need a lot of strokes. Now it's not even a contest, but back in the day, I need some help because they're just, they, you find out how good these guys are when you sit next to them and you're playing for cash where they don't want to lose. And they're going to hit it 80 yards by you, and then you've got to negotiate and, and how to get how to get it done from there. And as Jeff knows, the only club I had in my bag ever was my mouth. And I just – if I, <laughs> I can just get on guys and keep going and keep going and just get them to where they're just pissed off, and that's when you got some kind of chance. But otherwise, I have no chance. I'm not absolutely not, but it, it is good fun and it and it and it de- develops. I mean, Jeff was when he first came out there was really a quiet, introverted guy, um, and we played a lot. And Jeff started after you know a year or two, and he started coming back at me with stuff. So. I, I, a lot of these kids, it, it's fun to get them going competitively and then see what they've got verbally. Jeff would just beat you and just not say anything. And then Jeff, along the way, at some point started getting really good with the needle. And, um, and, yeah, and I was very proud of that development. Very proud. Not that I had anything to do with it, <laughs> but the fact that, that he got a needle. He, he got a needle. Jeff, will you just give us a quick analysis of McCord swing? Because, uh, I remember when he played, and he. My memory is that he had, he had a tall, languid, long backswing, beautiful rhythm, and he looked like a guy who's going to win on tour. Yeah, yeah, he's comfortably the most self-depreciating golfer I've ever met, and I've met a few. Um, he was very good. He had a good action. I wouldn't say it was long when I played with him, but he was already grey when I started playing with him. <laughs> um, I mean, length. He had length to the swing. Yeah, it was a very nice swing. He looked, he hit it straight all day. Um, said that he wasn't going to, but did. Um, his short game was cool. The little shut stance short game that he learned from somewhere. He played like a pro who'd been playing for 50 years, who'd picked up tips from everybody, <laughs> you know. Um, good assessment. And good assessment. really, really good. Good putter, especially while talking. Yeah. <laughs> um, could make six footers for $20 while talking through it. 
I think he was trying to distract you in case he missed it, but he made it every time. So um, he's a, a very underrated golfer, really good. I don't know how he didn't win on the big stage, actually. How did you not win on the big stage? I was um, – I was, um, as you know, if, if I had to go back and take a look at it, and I played the tour from 74 till about <laughs> started CBS in 86. So right around, you know, 87, 88, I kind of quit. So 90, so 74 to 90, that's, that's a long time to be really bad. And, um, and I, and as Jeff knows, I, I, I kind of started off slow, then I tapered off kind of one of those deals. <laughs> and I never could get it back. And, and mentally you get, you get out there and you get, depressed you get you constantly sitting in a hotel room thinking about how bad you are and pretty soon you become bad and that's kind of what i did uh i had a little bit of knowledge of the golf swing not much because in my era when we came up it was empirical you would go out on the range you'd hit balls and if one went bad you got uh, don't remember that one if it went good remember that swing we never had cameras we never had anything so we beat balls and figured out how we could do it and uh, it's not a really good speed learning uh, situation. Um, and so I had no clue what I was doing. I beat the hell out of everybody in, in college and the mini tours. And then when I got out there into that and everybody there was, I was an NCAA champion college division, which was a smaller division. And I went out there and everybody was NCAA champion, the big schools. And uh, they were, I remember my first tour school I went to, I'm playing the last round with Lanny Watkins and David Graham. And I had, and I was sheltered. I didn't play start playing golf till I was 15. I remember I went back home and I told these guys, I said, I play with some guys that are so far past me. It's unbelievable. I don't know how I would survive out there at this particular point. I didn't get my card that year. I got it the next. So yeah, you become, um, yeah, out there you, Jeff, what's the guy wandering? You you have a tendency to wander all over the place. And if we didn't have teachers, so you had to do it yourself. And if you weren't going the right direction, you know how long it took you to reverse that direction and then come back the other way or a way you thought was better. It was a constant, arduous trek through clouds and fogs and dark forest. And it was really hard to get if you had a rudder by then. It, it was, it, you, I don't, you know, you could steer it, but I, we didn't really steer where, which way to go. So that, that was a problem. Right now you go out there and, you know, you've got your teacher, you've, you've got your biomechanist, you've, you've got your nutritionist. Um, you've got literally everybody around you in this giant circle not letting you deviate from the path that you set forth. In our day, there was no path. There was no nothing. So I, I want to blame it on the fact that I was I was okay. I didn't have any concept of the golf swing whatsoever. I didn't, in, in basics, I didn't know where the face was and how to apply the face to the ball when I got nervous. The more nervous I got, the worse it got. And in golf, the more nervous you get, you hopefully you've got a, a good standard um, a good standard model you, you can go for. And it helps. Mine hurt. And I couldn't figure out why I got under the gun and I got worse. And that's the whole key in golf. You got to get out there and you've got to, you've got to play on the weekend, make the cut. Then you got to play good to play with the good players towards the end. 
when the fire gets raging inside and you can figure out then, all right, have I got it? What what happens? It's the only way to figure out. Then you go back to the range and try to try to try to figure out why it went wrong. And it, it that was a it was hard, hard process at, at that time. And I, you know, I wasn't good enough to go out there and just with my mechanics go, hey, look at me. Where's Jack? Where's Lee? Where's Arnold? Let's go. Uh, no, it wasn't that way. So uh, it's a long, convoluted way to say I was shitty. And <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. When did you start hanging out with Mac? 1985. Um, I was in Palm Springs and Mac was there. And I called him up and I said, where, where are you going next? And, and, uh, and excuse me, Jeff, this was 86. 1986. And um, he says, I'm going I'm to go to Augusta. I'm playing. And uh, I was doing the television. First time doing the television. So I met Mac out there. We played a practice round. In fact, Jody Mudd, me, and Mac O'Grady played a practice round. This is a good one. First time I played Augusta, 16th hole. You know, Mac wouldn't let you play golf. You had to hit shots and do all this crap. And he was working with Jody. So we get to the 16th hole, and we're going to play the whole I'm, You know, I think I'm playing for a score and playing for $10 units or 20 or a hundred, whatever we're playing for. And uh, the pin was on the left back over there in the corner, right around the bunker. And uh, so I get up to hit Mac. goes, hold on, hold on. And he said, go to the right. I want, I want to see if you can get in the ledge up there in the top, right. It's a hard shot. That's where it's going to be. That's where it's going to be on Saturday. See if you can get it up there. So I get up there with a seven iron. I pull hook it. And it went right in the hole over here on the left. And everybody's going nuts. <laughs> this is Augusta, first time I played it. I make a hole in one. I wasn't even aiming at the damn hole. I was aiming at another one up there, and people are going nuts. And I'm trying to tell them, no, 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 no. I just crank hooked that seven iron literally 40 yards away from where I was aiming. But I'll never forget that. Anyway, so Mac and I are playing, and Mac and I had grown up in, in, in uh, junior college. He was at, um, um, he was at Santa Monica Junior College. I was at Riverside City College. And I knew him then. He was nuts then, too. Um, wore a cowboy hat. Uh, uh, but, you know, golf swing was okay there, Jeff. Okay. Not anywhere near, and I'll tell you the next story, not anywhere near what it is now. And he always, he always had a left-handed club in his bag and then 13 right-handed clubs. And I played him in junior college. And he was nuts. So I, he came back, and I... And I, I had played with him somewhere, and I went, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That is not the swing I remember. This looked really good. Now, he had been to Asia playing, and he, I think he quit over there. He ended up playing left-handed for a while over in Asia. And then he started reading the golf machine, <clears throat> and then he started figuring out how to do it. And so after he figured out how to do it, that's when I met him in Augusta in 86, again, for the first time in a while. I said, can I come down and work with you? I I live in uh, I live in Palm Springs at the time, and Mac did too. He said, "Yeah, come out to the field." So there was a field there that um, we had at um, which golf course was that? Anyway, it's a big kind of soccer field. So I went out there one day. You know, you go out to hit balls. You think you can go hit balls for 20, 30 minutes with Mac, and I was out there for twelve and a half hours. And he showed me, he started hitting balls, left-handed, right-handed. I mean, and Jeff, as you know, when you when you looked at him when he was playing, it was perfect. It was freaking perfect. And he had a model, and he had started to investigate this model from the golf machine. 
And, I, and I'm watching this, and I'm going, and he's showing me. How. Finally, I got it after about 10 hours. I couldn't stand up. I couldn't hold on to the club. I, I was getting the idea of it. So at that point, we became really good friends. And from there to the last time I talked to him, I think it was 90, 1994. So eight years I was with him teaching a bunch of the guys on the tour, Max Model, uh, working with him and understanding it, and we were going to try to make a business out of it. So that's um, – I learned a lot. It was – I went to the mountain, uh, and I learned a lot. We had doctors. We had biomechanists. We had guys flying in left and right going on this model. Uh, Dr. Zavin Manchakian. Uh, it was intense – and at night, Mac wouldn't let you go, so he'd call you on the phone. And he'd call you on the phone, and Mac is deaf in the right ear 90% and totally deaf in the left ear 100% because his brothers beat the crap out of him when he was growing up. And so he had loss of hearing. So, in other words, Mac didn't listen. Mac talked. And literally, he'd get on the phone. We'd go on the phone for three or four hours after being with him all day, eight hours. And it was just, it was, it was intense to say the least of um, an education. I'm interested that you had a friendship with someone where you only had to listen. Isn't that right? <laughs> that, how about that? How about that? All, all, I, all I could do was just ask questions and then listen. And yeah, it was hard. That that was that was hard. It really was. It's a it's a very very good read on that. But it's it was hard. But in the long run. Um, you know, to, to watch to what he did with a lot of these guys, you know, all the way down from Jody Mudd, uh, Chip Beck. Um, um, he got Sevy back on track, Sevy didn't he? Ballesteros at the end. Um, and to watch them and the model and so forth and, and, and understand uh, the biomechanics of it and their neurology and all that stuff. It was really, really fun. A lot of fun. Gary, I'm interested that you um, – you you say your struggles on the PJ tour were because of, you know, nervousness, but you're obviously an extrovert and a showman and you seem to love a crowd. Is that something that developed later in life or you just couldn't transfer your natural personality into your golf game? Like, well, I think that was probably Alan, probably a lot of the problem was the fact that I was like that. Um, very gregarious, you know, like to have fun. Uh, I've got, I've got ADD really bad, which a lot of people do. So I, my focus was, oh, maybe a femtosecond. That's, that's, as, that's as much as I could focus. And then it was squirrel. And I'd you know, be bouncing around. And, was, I, and that, was, that was a problem. I couldn't really concentrate and put my full, my full focus on what I was doing. But, yeah, I remember coming up to the to – the, uh, who was brought this up the other day? Uh, oh, it was um, – um, on the tour. Hold on, I'll get in a second. Anyway, we're playing Silverado, 18th hole. It's a par five, bunch of people around. And this is stuff I would do. And and uh, so I told my caddy, I said, hit this is long before, a long before we had we had any any of any of these uh, cell phones. And I had this ringer in my bag. And I got over this putt and I'm looking at it like I can't figure out which way it breaks. And then the phone goes off my golf bag. Okay. Dingling, dingling, dingling. So I go over and I walk over there right in you know, the middle of the round. And uh, I figured out I had about a 25-foot uh, 
cord on the end of a phone. Okay, and I just stretched it out and I got behind the I got behind the ball. I said, So you're telling me it goes to the left, and I'm looking up. Okay. So you're telling me it goes to the left? It doesn't go to the left. You're kidding. So I have this long talk with God about which way the ball's going. And then we finally, you know, we get in there and, and I don't know if I made it or missed it, but that's the kind of stuff, you know, I had a I had toy chainsaws in my golf bag that had folding and they and you started it up like that. And it, it was plastic, but it it, it was uh, it was a tooth-edged uh, uh, cutter on the thing and it would fold back up in. So when I push it against a tree, it looked like it was cutting it. So I'd be over in the trees all the time, you know, the gallery. That's I knew everybody because I was on the trees. And I'm looking, I'm going, gee, the guy goes, oh, you know, what do, what do you think? You know, I'd ask these guys, what do you think? Well, you can't do anything. Trees are, ah, I'll take care of that. And I'd take the, <laughs> I'd start cutting. I got guys trying to push the tree over and help me push the tree because I was cutting the tree. So you can see I was focusing a little too much on the deviant part instead of the part that I wanted to or should have been thinking about. I just want to note that Gary was witty long before he got on TV. When I was catting briefly, I heard him say of there was an old time caddy named Lee Lynch. And, and, <laughs> and, and Gary, Gary said, apropos of no, nothing, Lee Lynch isn't going to die. He's just going to crystallize one day while tending the pin. <laughs> Lee, Lee Lynch was, let's see. Boy, this is going back a long time. He was known as Fingers. And he, he the shoulder massages he would give were unbelievable. He'd just go down. If he was working for Al Geiberger for a long time. And he'd go, fingers, fingers, I need some work here. And he'd come over, hey, like that. Man, you felt great. But you're right. I think the guy just crystallized. He just literally turned into a quartz, and he's out there somewhere in the desert. Uh, the old boy. You know, you know, Gary, you know how that's not true? Mike Donald paid for his burial. Oh, did he? Okay. Good for Mike. <laughs> that's, that's great. Yeah, because he had nothing. Uh, we weren't making much back then, and neither were the caddies. Gary, you've been around the game for so long. If you think about, you know, you were a fan of the game, I'm sure, when Big Jack and Arnold were playing, and, you know, right through the day, you've, you've seen it all. Do you think of golf as a continuum, or do you think of it as errors, like, you know, the persimmon era or your era when you had to pay for range balls, and then Curtis hit it, you know, not short and straight, but in play anyway, and then VJ hit it as long as he can. Is it a continuum to you or is it errors? Well, it's a continuum, but you pigeonhole the, the, the continuum into into parts that you can remember, okay? Oh, I remember, you know, Arnold and Jack. And then, you know, Lee came around and started hitting fades and, and uh, throwing snakes at people. And then, you know, it, 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 it is a continuum. Golf is a continuum, but it, it has to be identified with something so you can remember those errors, right? Usually where you the errors you lived in. So you would quantify it that way. And, uh, but it, yeah, it did start 1400s, 1500s. Jeff knows all that stuff. And it is today. And it's going to keep going and going and going as a continuum. But then you've got to figure out what era I was in and what era, oh, the Jack era, you know, the Tiger area or whatever. And I've been in all of those right now. Um, um, I used to play with Julius Boros and, <laughs> and, uh, and all those guys, and, and now to be out there and watch these kids, it's, it's really entertaining. I mean, very entertaining to watch how different they are, we were, compared to what these kids are doing. 
obviously you would, if given the choice, you'd probably still want to be on the airwaves. Do did that diminish your enthusiasm for watching golf and not, not being able to call no, it anymore? No, because, you know, I had so many friends out there and it, it was fun. I, I, I did it for 35 years. Um, and I didn't like the way they did it. Um, there was a, we had a two year option, both Peter Costas and I had a two year option and, um, CBS had never not taken an option. Okay. And, um, so they just, I mean, they called us up. It was, uh, it was 2000, it was 2019. I'm, I'm here in Scottsdale and Costas calls me and I go, Hey, what's going on? Did you get a phone call from New York? No. He goes, uh, I got one. I said, what? He goes, I got fired. What? What do you mean you got fired? Our, our options were up two more years and then we were out. And I go, fire? Are you kidding? Now I'm thinking the whole time I'm looking at my phone going, shit, did anybody call me? <laughs> and I'm nothing. So now I'm going, thank God, Peter got fired. But shit, I don't give a shit. I didn't get fired. So <laughs> okay, I'll keep going. I get that night. I'm sitting there and I go and all of a sudden the phone gives me a little, little beep there and I'd, I'd look and it was a, it was a message a voicemail that was six hours old I don't know you know you know how they come out of they kind of out of the ether somewhere and they land and I saw the number on it was 212 which is New York and I went oh shit so I didn't look at it until I got it the next morning and I sat there and I looked at it and I hit uh, I hit send and uh, uh, Gary, can you call me, please, Sean McManus? I need to talk to you. Blah blah blah. So that was it, and um, and they whacked us. Um, they they told us that we can do what we want, but they would like to for the first two tournaments of the next year for us to come back and get out. So it would have been San Diego and Phoenix, and they would do a little dog and pony. For those to get out, and I, I kind of said no because I thought it was more for them than it was for us, and uh, so I just said no. So that was it. We just kind of got whacked, um, very succinctly, to say the least. Gary, what was your path to CBS? Did you know Cherkinian or Chuck Will or some of those guys? The path was it was nineteen, it was nineteen eighty six. I was on the tour policy board, one of the three player directors, which is a frightening thought in itself. And um, I was on an air, I, I was going from, from Colonial to Muirfield for Jack's tournament. I was not in the tournament because that's a, uh, a tournament. They go right off the money list, uh, invitational. So I was not in, but we had policy board meetings Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So I get on the airplane, we're flying, and to get on the airplane, I had to go through first class, which was Pat Summerall, Ben Wright, Frank Chikinian, uh, uh Ken Venturi, and who else? Somebody else in first. And I'm in 37C back there. So at about halfway there, I get I get a half a half drunk bottle of wine. Okay, from the boys in first class. Hope and enjoy, you're enjoying with a little note. Hope you're enjoying 37C. So I went up to thank him. While I was walking up, uh, Jeff will get this idea. So Wednesday, I had nothing to do. And the next tournament was Washington, D.C. Now, I'm out there making nothing. And if I, I can't go to Washington, D.C. early. I can't. It's too expensive. 
So I figured a con. I, I went back to Frank. I said, Frank, listen, I'm on the policy board making decisions, CBS, NBC, ABC at that time. I said, I know nothing about television. Is there any chance I could come and watch you in the trucks do a telecast so me, as one of the three player directors, can get an idea of this when I make decisions? I have a little better background as what, what to look for and what to talk about in these meetings. And he looked at me and I go, he goes, you got nothing to do, huh? No. You broke? <laughs> Just like that, you broke. Yeah. He goes, all right, check into the Stouffer's and, um, and we'll, uh, we'll go, we'll go Friday, come on in Friday. So I remember, I remember that night at Stouffer's, we go in there, he says, all right. Frank was uh, basically started the entire business, the Ayatollah, five foot eight Carthinian general, basically. So we go there and we met at the bar. All the idiots are at the bar. We're sitting around. And so you go from the bar. This was every day now, every day. You go from the bar and then you go into the restaurant right next to it. I'm sitting next to Summerall. And, I, you know, I've, I've heard about these guys, but I've never witnessed these guys. So we're sitting there and there's, they serve us, they serve us uh, uh, salads first. So we're sitting there. I mean, about my third bite next to me, all I hear, I hear this. And face first, Pat Summerall into the salad, Roquefort coming everywhere, everywhere. And no one even looks. And they keep talking. And I'm looking, I'm looking over, and this guy, I, he's, I've never heard anybody drown in Roquefort dressing, but this guy's got a chance at it. So I'm, I don't know, you know, this is my first day there. I don't, and I, I'm, I keep looking at him and I'm talking to Ben Wright. And finally, Ben Wright goes, ah, good God, he's done it again. And he gets up and he takes him by the hair, pulls him up. And here's Pat Summerall, nothing with Roquefort dressing. Never, you can't recognize him. And Ben gets him up out of the deal, walks him into the, into the elevator and up to his room, puts him in bed and comes back. No one says a word. Nobody says a word about this. And I went, Jesus, God, this is going to get interesting. So I go out there on Friday for rehearsal, show up, go into the trucks, the big truck, and I walk in and Frank and the sound guy, his, his director is next to him. Frank was actually producing and directing at the same time. And, you know, all the guys have, you know, it's a hundred monitors up there. And uh, I get in, I sneak in the back and I sit down. I'm kind of looking wide eyed at her. I've never been in the trucks. And all of a sudden, Somebody says, hey, Frank, McCord's behind you. And he turns around and goes, hey, asshole, get out to 16. And I no, I, I wanted to watch you get out to 16. I, walk, so I get out the door. I walk out to 16. Jeff, you remember the old days, 16, at uh, Muirfield. I walk out. I'm, now I'm going towards, I start angling for the T. I don't know why I'm going to 16. He didn't even say, I'm angling to the T because I think I'm going to be a spotter. And that's basically a caddy that's missed a cut. He comes out and he sits there with a the headset on. And Fred Couples pulls out a seven iron and he goes, Fred's got a seven iron. That goes through the trucks up to the announcer. That's what I think I'm going to do. I get halfway to the right, walking over there. And uh, I hear screaming and yelling from Vern Lundquist up in the tower. Get up here. Get up here. And he goes, um, come on up. Come on up. So I climb up and uh, he hands me a headset. I said, what's this for? He says, Frank wants to try as an announcer. Well, I figure it's a lot better than being a caddy on the tee, right? So I sat there, and we did rehearsal for 
literally four minutes, some cameras broke down. He says, ah, hell with it. He says, everybody in place tomorrow, one o'clock. Now I had four minutes. I didn't, I have no idea who was talking. No idea. The only guy I remember was Pat Summerall because he was doing those, those union, uh, those hardware commercials, uh, um, true, true hardware. And I, I, I remember the voice. Oh, okay. That's, that's him. And then there's Frank's yelling at me in this ear all the time. And then people are talking this ear and that's the play by play. Anyway, no idea. So, so we got up to the, uh, that's how I got the job. So we get up there on Saturday and I'm studying my ass off. I'm sitting in a folding chair right here. And next to me here is a, is a, it basically it's a window, plexiglass, and there's a spotter. And the spotter for, for, um, Vern Lundquist was literally, we weighed him at Safeway one day. He was 420 pounds. Okay, offensive lineman for Wisconsin. So he literally, when the when the sun went to set on that side of the tower, it was dark in there, totally dark. And then Vern was on the other side. So I'm sitting next to the cameraman and waiting and waiting. And I don't know what I'm doing. I literally, I'm on national television. I got no clue what I'm doing. And so we go and um, and I'm on 16. I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the guys. I've done homework, got my stuff and all of a sudden, we're going, and and Vern goes, um, he goes, Gary, what the, what's his putt look like? Well, look, there's nobody on the green. There's nobody on the 16th hole. And Jeff, as you know, you look to the right, you can you can look down 14, a nice rival par four, and then the 15th tees. There's nobody there because we've got we've got starting times in between. So the next group is on the 14th hole. I'm on 16 on national television. Vern goes, Gary, what's his putt look like? Well, now I put down my paper and I'm looking and there's nobody on there. There's nobody playing the hole. So now I think, well, maybe this is a joke from the guy. So I get out over the end and I look underneath. I did. I got up and looked underneath the tower to see if the guys down below were hiding. Really? Because there's nobody there. And I went, finally, what the hell of it? I said, Vern. This putt is really sincerely fast. And if he hits us too hard, it could go in the water. Thinking now these guys are just putting me on. We're still in commercial break, right? Um, Jeff, 10 years ago, is there any water on 16? 10 years ago, no. No, no water, no nothing. Jack did not put the lake in until about five years ago, four years ago. There's no water. The only water is a drinking fountain on the tee on 16. <laughs> so I make this up. Right. And Vern goes, Oh, he says, you're right. Another couple of feet. Um, and it was, um, it was, uh, I know who hit this putt too. Bob, I'll get it in a second. Bob. Anyway, he hits his putt and goes, he says, it's on the fridge, another foot and gone to water. And now let's go to Pat Summerall at, at 18. And I go, Wait a bird, bird, bird. What the hell? What's going on? He goes, what do you mean? He said, good call, but you got to get faster. I said, good call, there's nobody here. He says, well, you got to look at the monitor. I said, Ma, I can't see the monitor. You got Jabba the Hutt in front of you. I can't see through him. And he goes, oh, he says, and then all of a sudden he went, oh, Jesus. He said, uh, rehearsal. I said, yeah, we had five minutes. I said, 
what's going on? He goes, do you know we have five other holes? I go, excuse me? What? I'm on the 16th hole. I'm an idiot, so I just figured we're doing the 16th hole. We got five other holes. And the other hole we were doing at that time was the 12th hole. Part three, beautiful. Looks like <clears throat> looks like Thoreau's, Thoreau's Lake there. Beautiful. Just gorgeous setting down in. Well, Bob Westwood, that was it. Eastwood, excuse me. I always call him Westwood. He was on the top. Top of the green up there, Greg, and the pin's on the front, right on the front of the water up there. And he hit this putt going down that hill, and he hit it past, rolled about eight feet by on the fringe. And literally, he would have had to hit it pretty hard, but it could have gone in the water. So I just made the whole damn thing up, and I got it right. So I figured, this is the business for me. So, Frank, (laughs) it was, again, the 16th hole. And why I got asked the next week, the 16th hole and the backstop there, and it was Payne Stewart was up there. The well, late Payne Stewart was up there, and it you it looks like you look like a Bedouin sheep over the green up on that hill, and you're hitting straight down to this green. The green is green's harder than a rock. And Byrne goes, Gary, what's he got? And I said, Well, here's what he's got. Everybody out there at home, I want you to get your wedge. I want you to get a ball. I want you to walk out to your front lawn, chip it on your driveway, start hollering for it to bite. That's what he's got. Well, get done. Frank's laugh. First time I've ever heard Frank laugh. And he gets done. He goes, what are you doing next week? I go, well, I'm, I'm playing uh, I'm playing Washington, D.C. at the Kemper. He goes, great. He said, you'll miss the cut. When you miss the cut, come on up. So I did that for three years. I went up. They gave me 500 bucks for the weekend. So if I missed the cut, which was 90% chance I was going to make a miss a cut, I would go up and do that. And they finally signed me. I told them, I'm not going to do any more. In 19, I think it was 89 or 90, I said, I need a contract, and I'll quit playing. So that was it. That's how, that's how long-winded, that's how I got the job. That's a great story. It's also proof that for you guys, uh, making an outrageous prediction, and Johnny Miller made a career out of this, is always a good thing. Like Miller would, you know, some improbable bunker shot, and John would say, yeah, he could hold this. You know, and then one in 12 times, John would be correct, and he'd look like a genius. He didn't remember the other 11. Well, I think that was Nostradamus, I think, I think predicted about 4% of his predictions came out true, 4%. But, but his legacy is based on, on the 4% that he got right. And, and I, I'll, I'll tell you a story about Ian Baker Finch. Uh, Ian Baker Finch came over from ABC to work at CBS. And I had tried to get him to work. I brought him into the tower at, um, it was at the Western Open. Jeff, where was the golf course? It had five golf courses there. And one guy owned Western them all. Western Open. Where? Cog Hill? Cog, Cog Hill. Hill. Cog Hill. Cog Hill. So it was, uh, it was at, uh, at, at Cog Hill. I, I took him up the tower. He was really good, good-looking guy, and he was starting to snipe it off the tee really bad, and he couldn't find it left. And he's such a good guy. And I just, man, you you got to quit doing this. You're going to kill yourself. So I, I brought him up in the tower. Frank liked him, but he said, I don't need another freaking foreign voice anymore. So that was that in the first time. So then he finally came to, um, after ABC, he came to CBS. Here's about the second telecast. And uh, he said something on the air, and I just jumped him about, it's not right. How can you say that? How can you even think about that? That's a right hand doesn't do that in a golf swing. And, you know, I start arguing. So we get done. And we get to the, uh, out to the compound there at the double lights. And he goes, can I talk to you for a second? I said, yeah. I said, 
what? And he goes, you know, that argument we had today, and I, I'm thinking argument. Oh, yeah, 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 that. I said, what? And he goes, well, I, I didn't know you were going to jump me like that. I, I didn't know that, you know, I thought I was wrong. No, no, you were dead right. I said, you're absolutely 100% right. But I said, in, in television, what, what we try to do is try to take a side. Take for it or against it. Jane, you ignorant slut. Take one of the two sides and you argue it. Even if you, even if you agree with the guy. Because you've got people at home sitting on a couch and they're going, they're going through the remote as fast as they can. And for them to stay, they've got to take part in something. They have to take a side and watch it argue out and then decide whether they're going to watch anymore. I said, if you do a telecast at NBC at that time, everybody, everybody was, was of the same mindset. They had, they had the same thoughts. They would say, yes, Johnny, you're absolutely right. Roger, you're absolutely right, 100% right. Well, it gets boring after a while. So you've got to have this agonist-antagonist relationship, even if it's faked on the air, to get some spice in it because what I, it was television. And if you're on television, it's in the entertainment business. So you watch guys like Jeff play, and then you say, oh, Acolyte's good or bad. You know, that was a shitty shot. Uh, he doesn't hit many of those. I hit a lot of whatever it is. And then you pound him on something else or, you you know, you applaud him on something else. And then you take sides and go back and forth because you watch every sitcom that's ever done. And it's always it's usually four people in a room that are totally divergent in their philosophy, their ways of life, how they grew up. And they meet in the middle. And in that middle, the fist fight and you get in the middle is where all the fun is. And golf is is they've lost that totally, totally of. Uh, Frank liked it. He liked the whole thing uh, about doing it that way. So that was just the way I, I don't know what the question was a long time ago, but that's, I think, how golf should be done. And again, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, you liken it to a sitcom, I do. It just sounds like the grill room at Whisperock. Bingo. Exactly right. Exactly right. You just start pounding on people when they come in. You just give them every bit of ammo you got. See who likes to come back at you. And they come back at you. You go after them harder and see what they got. And then it gets down to, okay, let's go out and play for hundreds, you asshole. And you go out and you play for hundreds and, and pick a partner and go. And it's it, there's nothing better. You know, me remember, Jeff, in the old day when Phil would get out there with a needle <laughs> and just, and, and he would, you know, he'd get so cocky with his bets, he'd make bets he couldn't win. And that's because Phil always had a lot of money. So you could, I remember one day when I played and there were, it was he and Stricky and me and Jeannie and somebody else. And they were going to play best ball against my five guys scramble score. Well, you can't can't win that bat. You can't just, you can't do it. And the fourth hole he paid off. He gave everybody a hundred. Let's start over. Let's do something else. I said, okay, fine. So we did. But there's stuff like that. It's always in good fun. And you learn, you know. Jeff, you know, Jeff's really good at the needle. He's got a dry one, but he's really good at the needle. And um, that, that's that's how we learned when I was younger. That's how you learn how to play. It's a great environment to get better. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah when okay. Phil comes to town, Phil comes to town, sends out a text to about 12 guys. He's like, I'm coming. We're playing $100 a hole or something, and we're playing off the back. And he gets in, and he's playing not only in his group. There's two or three other groups who didn't get in his group that he's playing $100 a hole. And there's 
he's playing 12 different people and you just compare cards at the end of the day. And he takes a bath every time, but he loves it. <laughs> he loves it. He loves it. All his boys are there from ASU. So it was, uh, it was fun and games. As you surely know, you know, Link Soul is a clothing and a lifestyle brand. I've been wearing it for at least a decade. It's cool stuff. It's super comfy. Everyone at the fire pit loves it. We're believers. Uh, if you go to linksoul.com and use the promo code firepit25, you will get 25% off your purchase. You're welcome. And uh, we're also giving away a $250 Linksoul gift card per episode. So go to um, the Fire Pit YouTube channel and leave a comment from this episode and say how much you loved it because surely you're loving it. You're a golf fan. You have to be loving this. And um, the winners will be notified and promoted on our Instagram and our Twitter feed. So get involved. Uh, we're trying to have some fun. But we also have to pay the bills here at the Fire Pit Collective. So back to Nita Fourth. I, I don't know if you saw this little news break in the Sports Business Journal, but um, you know the the tour is going to try and streamline the telecast, the fewer commercials, and uh, you know, like the last hour at um, in Maui was commercial free and things of that nature. If, there's there's been so much talk for so many years about the the to product that's given to viewers at home. If if we gave you all the power in the world, Gary, how would how would you reinvent the way the PGA Tour is televised? I'll tell you a story. Um, <laughs> I know you will. First, first of all, that everybody's trying to emulate the Masters, okay, in every way, shape, or form. Okay, the, the number one thing if you get into the media part of it is. <laughs> There's, what, a minute and a half commercials an hour, okay? They get the four sponsors in there. They give them a lot of money. The guys say, okay, fine, we'll do that. What a presentation. You never get mired in, in uh, let's see, in a half hour. I think we're allotted, I think it's think it's nine minutes of commercial per half hour. And those get backloaded a lot. So all of a sudden they start, you know, when the action's not going, they start throwing commercials at you. And you're going, Jesus, come on. Um I had, at the end of last year, Greg Norman was calling me, trying to get me to come to live, um, to be one of the announcers with Faraday. And they wanted to kind of reinvent things. And they got a hold of, at that time, too, they got a hold of Charles Barkley. So Charles and I are good buddies. He's a member out there, too, where, where Jeff and I play. And we had a talk one day. And he goes, hey, he says, uh, what, what would I do in this thing? I don't know anything about golf. I said, well, I got an idea that I'll pitch to him if it gets that far. So well, what is it? And I said, well, if, if, if I'm going to do, if I'm going to do live, if I'm going to start over, I need to catch their attention. I can't do it like you do it now where you put a couple of announcers up in the deal and you play grab ass up there and you throw it down to somebody on the ground. I said, that's, you know, it's old. It's old. I said, Chuck, here's what I'd like to do. We'll have a camera. POV is behind five bar stools at a bar. The play-by-play is up on a television like we all watch it at a bar. And it's there. There's your, there's your, uh, there's your um, um, uh, video monitor, basically the television set, of your on-air deal right there. Camera's behind you. The host is over here sitting at a cocktail table on the left. So we got three guys at the bar. I would be on the outside. Uh, Chuck, you're in the middle. Faraday, you're on the outside too. And now they shoot it from that perspective, the back of our heads as we're drinking in the bar and watching the golf on television. And I said, then we have a guest bartender 
every week, a celebrity. And that guy is the foil for all of our, Jeff, as you know, the, the long needles. And we'll get some guys in there really good. He's a bartender. There's going to be a mop back there, and he will be the guy doing all the swings uh, for the instruction. Hey, you know, uh, Ben Affleck, Ben, Ben, is that your name? Ben, thank you. Ben, grab that mop. Um, let me, let me, Chuck, let me, let me show you what Scotty Scheffler, Shuffles does. I said his left arm's in the air. Ben, take, take that mop, take the, take that thing and put your left arm way up in the air. See, he gets it way up there and then he drops it and then he takes his feet and he does a shuffle like this. Ben, do a shuffle. So what you do is, uh, all it is is the Manning cast. Okay. It's a Manning cast and we throw it to golf and we get three people on there. Chuck loved that because I would, he wouldn't have to talk about golf. He could sit there and he says, and he told me before he went to talk to Norman in Atlanta, he says, I'll get, I'll get all the celebrities every week to come in and sit there. We were going to have the studio would be at probably Dallas and we'd shoot the studio out of there and we let the guys travel to Riyadh and uh, Bangkok and wherever because I don't want to go there. So that was, a, there's, there's, there's a game plan. And that's, that's the one that, that, that I came up with. Just three guys at a bar watching golf with a, with a bartender that everybody's going to know, and we can just pound on him for the whole telecast. So that's it. Many cast. And, and Norman didn't like that. I never got to Norman with that. I never got that far. I got, I've talked to a couple other people about it and uh, they would, um, they thought it was very interesting. I thought it was very interesting. A hundred years ago, a company that owned the most bars in the United States. I don't know what that company is wanted Faraday and I to do the Masters and after we left, wanted us to do the Masters and call it any way we wanted to off a live off a live uh, show. And we would just overlay and just start talking about it, two guys at the bar doing it. And that's where I got there. And that was a long time ago. And I, I don't think Augusta probably wouldn't let us do that. <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. I just think in a wild guess. But I think you've got to get it more like that. And I if if I was doing live, I'd do I have to do something like that. You gotta catch their attention. They haven't even got a network yet, right? So if you did put it on CW or Fox Sports One or whatever they're talking about, at least the people will go, Did you see how they're doing this thing? They've got some guy, a bartender in their talking and drinking and watching golf and talking over it and everything else. Um, so that, that would be my approach to, to doing something like that, new and aggressive and, and um, have some fun with it. Gary, when you were working on Tin Cup, you, you've, you've got so much creative energy and so much creative insights. You know, you're talking about the sitcoms and how you might do a, a golf telecast. When you were working on Tin Cup, did you bring any of this to the set, to the set of that movie? And did they use any of it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of it. A lot of it. I was the, the technical director of the movie. So I was responsible for getting for getting uh, um, Kevin Costner to look like he looked like he could play a little bit. And he had a big languid swing, you know, and he played nine times uh, with his with his uh, father-in-law. And uh, he came into um, he came into the World Series of Golf at Firestone and we went Jeff over to uh, Sharon Country Club, if you ever play there. We took him over there in the range, and uh, I brought Costas with me. 
and we're back there and, and you know he's got this big language swing he's, he's going to be in the movie in the script he's from Salome West Texas well if my buddies are going to watch it and I'm the and I'm the technical director and I got a guy from Salome West Texas with a club head going down about 30 degrees past parallel and arms and legs going everywhere that ain't going to fly this swing head he had a strong grip closed club face and a short policer. That's the only way you play golf in West Texas. So we started from there, and then, and luckily, Ron Shelton and Gary Foster, the, the producer, we became very good friends. So I got I got a lot of leeway and who I wanted in there and the scenes and everything else. So it was it it was really fun to do. It was boring as hell because you're on the set. I was still working. I was playing. And I was also doing this movie, and I had to be all over the place as a technical director every day um, shooting this thing. Or I'd go play somewhere and come back and have a guy there doing all this stuff. But it, 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 was, it was that creative process, Michael, is what you're asking. I loved. I loved because I had, I had some control over all the golf stuff. Okay? And... Not the rewriting, but we put a lot of stuff in. I said, you know, this, that, 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 that. It looks better if you did it this way or that way. Um, so it was fun. It, it was fun. I, I, I don't know if I'd have the energy to do it again because it was the early cast calls were 6.30 in the morning um, if you were shooting early, and the late ones were one thirty, And you were there all day, all day. I'll give, I'll give you one with the bar scene with the pelican and – Ron got that. I did that actually in Pensacola. Uh, there, a lot of the scenes in the movie I did that Ron, and I didn't know when he was writing it. I didn't even know him then. So when I got the script, I read it and I went, what the hell? I did this shit. Uh, how does he know about this? So I called him up and I, he flew out to Vail, Colorado, Edwards, Colorado, where I live in the summer. He flew out in, in Kevin's airplane. And we just... Played golf. I took him up hiking. Uh, about killed him a couple times, and just drank. And we talked about the movie and everything, what he wanted to do. And it was, it was really cool. I said, "I'm in. I'm in. I'll, 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 I'll do this." And uh, and so from there, I got a very good relationship with the, with the three guys that are running. So we kind of just you know got in and and acted out all of the stuff and the the pelican scene. Um, I was, I, it was a Pensacola, and it was me, Ed Sneed, uh, Bill Calfee, and John Schroeder staying in a condo, and it's a rainout for the day. So we go back, we're playing gin, and <laughs> we're in this condo, and my bedroom's in the back down a hallway, so I go back there, take a leak, and come back out, and I look at this pelican, we were on a, we were on a canal, and we had a wharf going out there, and this pelican landed on the, on the big post in the the deal. I'm looking like, and hey, we're gambling anyway. I my clubs are right there, and I say, "Hey guys, you give me ten shots from the bedroom, and I'll bet you I can knock that pelican off his perch." And they're all looking down. They go, "Game on!" And the money starts slamming down. So I had to move a couple of furniture, move a light, had to open the sliding glass door. And I had about thirty yards of, of hallway to go through till I till I got to the to the main room, and then out the double, and then. Double doors <laughs> over the wood railing, and then it was about another 75. There's a 160, 70-yard shot. Well, I got back there, and the thing, and I'm looking, I'm going, what the hell? How do you how do you take a club 
And Jeff, it was a four iron. How do I do that? I got to hit down. I got to cut it to spin it to get it up in the air to fly this thing without taking a divot out of the carpet because I didn't have any money at the time. And if I if I ruin the carpet, I'm, that's going to be expensive. And if I pull it, I'm going to hit one of the sliding glass doors. So all of a sudden, this wasn't <laughs> very much fun. So I got to say, everybody out, here it comes. And I opened the doors up. I took a forearm and I went down. I short-armed with my left arm and clipped it. I just cut across it. And I missed the wall about that much on the left. And it it's going through the bed, or through the main room now, the front room, and it, all of a sudden it starts to cut, and I'm going right at these glass, sliding glass doors. It missed it by about that much. Went over the railing. I look up, and it's going right at this freaking pelican, and it went over about one foot right over the top of his head, and he flew, gone. I went nuts. <laughs> one shot, back bedroom, and I no one knew about this. Nobody. And I'm looking at this in the movie going, and I, I called Ron. I said, where'd you get this? He goes, I got a Golf World. You were in an article. I said, bullshit. So he sent me the article. I don't know who wrote it. I don't know how they found out. One of the other guys must have told him. So that Pelican scene. We go there, and it's a fake bar that they put on this country club they built. It took them about a week. Unbelievable. And we're sitting in there, and this is a, a big deal because I've got, I've got Rene Russo sitting there. i got Kevin. I got uh, everybody else in the movie. I've got Cheech's in there, everything else. And I got this line that's a paragraph. So I go in and I study all night and I'm studying and studying and it's a paragraph. And I mean, it, they're hard to do anyway, but when you got real actors there, you don't want to look like an idiot. So we start and we shoot for five hours. And we get done at 1.30 and nothing's done. The lighting's wrong. The cameras are wrong. And I'm hitting this line every time. Lunch. Break for lunch. We're going to start. We're going to do something else. So I come and here Renee Russo comes over and she puts out her hand. She goes, and, and who are you? And I said, I'm, I'm Gary McCord. Um, she says, you're not an actor, right? And I go, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was doing good. Damn. I go, no. I, I go, no, Renee, I'm not. I'm a golf professional and I'm the her her. Her uh, husband played golf. I'm a golf professional, and uh, I'm I'm just the uh, I'm in the movie, and I'm, and I'm also the the technical director. So that's I go why why don't you think I'm I'm an actor? Now I'm going well. God damn it! Why why does you think I'm an actor? And she goes well, Gary. She says I knew you weren't an actor when you hit your first line, and you nail it, and you hit it again for five hours, and I go. Okay, what? She goes, okay, when you get a script, we don't even look at the script because we know this first, this scene, which took three days. It's a minute and a half of the movie, minute 40. This scene took three days. And she says, here's how, I said, tell me how it works. She goes, you get in there, you got your script reader over here. And they go, okay, Renee. And you go, script reader, what's my line? She says, it will take a day and a half for these people to get the lighting to get the camera sliding the right way, to get everything perfect. And then the last half a day, on the last day is when you need the line and you got to know it. So you got two and a half days to learn the line. We never even look at the script. <laughs> so the rest of the movie, that really helped because I never even, I just, you know, like a big time guy, script. And they go, da, da, da. Okay, I got it. And there you go. And she was right. By the time you got done, you were so tired of that line. You could say it. Upside down, backwards. 
I don't know what the question was. But that, there was the, <laughs> the question was about the 1918 memorial, I think. Um, mm. No, I'm just kidding. But yeah. I don't know if you ever looked at your Wikipedia, Gary, but it says no. um, you appeared in Tin Cup, a movie he says is based on his life. Is are we? I mean, obviously they 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 picked it was, choose, but it was based it was based on on your life, Lady Trevino, yeah, John Jacobs, and and not John Jacobs, Jeff knows not the John Jacobs <laughs> is a teacher, John Jacobs who is Jeff. How would you? How, how would you define JJ? Um, he's had a good time. Ever in golf? He's right there. Close he's to right. one of the best players I've ever played with. Easily. But a little... Uh, didn't have the discipline. Didn't really have the self-discipline, I guess. I've known him since we've been 21. 21. I think we've only been arrested once, and that was in Tijuana. But that's just another long story. That- no, we have time. We have time, Gary. Let's do it. No, no, we, we, our no, listeners have time. I've been with him in so many of these these things that he's got into. Um, the other day, we're talking on the radio. I never. I usually hear most of them, right? And I'm talking to JJ, and uh, now JJ was six foot two, two hundred and forty pounds, um, long hair, good looking guy. Hit it miles. He had a standing bet with Jim Dent of ten thousand dollars any place, anytime, long drive, anytime, and Dent couldn't have beat him. He would hit it farther than anybody I've ever seen with wooden clubs and everything else. And um, and JJ would. Uh, so we're talking, and he goes, uh, and we'd go down, and he'd call me when Evil Knievel came into town at La Costa. I lived in Escondido, which is about a twenty-five minute drive, and he and he and Evil were good buddies. And Evil, for whatever reason, loved to lose on the golf course. And I mean loved to lose. I mean, we got in the first tee at La Costa, and here was a game. There was a money game, whatever it was worth. But if you hit a tree, you had to pay the other guys in the group 5000 apiece. Now, this was, this was a while ago. This is in the 70s. What? <laughs> 5,000 apiece. I teed the ball that high and I just burned it right along the ground. Never got it in the air because evil is all over the place, hitting trees everywhere. I don't know. We settled for half. I don't know what it was. But evil got lose money. One time, uh, and JJ is saying this on the air, he says, I beat, I beat uh, evil out of 175,000. And he said he was there for 14 days at La Costa. And he said, about 15th day, he comes up to him. <clears throat> Evil comes up to JJ and says, hey, I got to go to New Orleans and I'm broke. So JJ gives him 75 grand. Okay. And I, he says, it's on the air. And I go, what? You know, he's not going to pay you back. You get any collateral? Yeah, yeah. He gave me something, but I never, I never looked at it. And I gave him the money. I knew he was going to, I knew I'd never see it again. So then he says, you know, and he says, finally, I'm out in the parking lot one day back behind the condos there, where Evil said he left me something. So he said, I'm going to go see what the hell. This is a month, two months afterwards. And he goes back there and he sees um, there's a car there. And it's got a tarp over it. So he undoes it. And there is Evil Knievel's. Do you ever guys ever remember seeing his Stutz Bearcat? Just all you got to do is go on Google and look at Evil Knievel car. And there is evil with a Stutz Bearcat. This is the damnedest thing you've ever seen. 
This car is outfitted with, it is, it is, it's a 1970, I think it was a 1976. And it was, it's evil's car, evil's car. And I go, oh, he gave you that? Are you kidding? And he goes, yeah, but he's next to it. He says there was this trailer. And he said there was another tarp on it. So he said he gave me that too, whatever it was. And he says, so, and this is JJ telling the story. He takes off the tarp. And he's looking and he's telling me, he goes, it was a, it was a, it was all broken and it was just a bunch of metal and it was a thing and he signed it for me and it was, I said, a rocket? And he goes, yeah, wait a minute. That was the rocket? He went over the Snake River? Yeah, yeah, that's it. I go, holy shit. So we start going nuts now and we, while we're on here, we call up eBay or something. We got eBay to see how much those two things would be worth the day on eBay. And it was somewhere around five to six million. Okay. JJ, where'd they go? Ah, oh. he said, ah, oh, a week later, he said, I had a bad run at uh, Del Mar with the horses. And he said, I had a buddy of mine who was in the salvage business. So I gave him to him for four grand. <laughs> you, gave, you gave him a stuff spare can and you gave him the rocket that went over the thing for four grand. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, I lost that the next day too <laughs> at the track. So it was just a story. Like, it's just, like Jeff said, it's just, it's unbelievable. You just, you can't gather up all the stories. So anyway, the movie was about Lee. There's a lot of JJ and a few of my stories. So we're back in Tijuana now. What, what year is this? When I, um, <laughs> we're playing the Mexican Open, JJ and myself. And JJ lives La Costa. I live over there. He's, he called me, and we're in the last group together. And there's one group behind us. We're playing pretty good for the Mexican Open. <laughs> so he goes, come on over. And he says, I'll drive you over there. Well, JJ never had a car. Ever, never had a car. I don't know where he got his stuff. Um, guy gave him a condo there at La Costa. His brother ran it. He was a golf pro, Tommy. So we go there. He's got some. He's got a black Firebird. I don't know where he got it. So we get the car. We get boom. Here we go. Tijuana. Now we get and, and as you know, if you guys been to Tijuana lately, or this was thirty years ago. So the they got a bunch of traffic. They got traffic circles. Okay, they got traffic circles. Now JJ, JJ was well lubed. By the time I got there at his house, I got to his house at 7.30 in the morning. And he had a he had one of those big gulps, you know, about like that. You got it at 7-Eleven, and it flared at the top. And that was all full of ice and straight vodka. And he's driving, drinking, driving, drinking. We go, and we get one of those circles. And he gets, he gets some, somehow, somehow, he got going in a circle, and we turned, and now he's in the circle, and he's going the wrong way. He's... He's going against the flow, okay? And so he's going the wrong way, and all of a sudden, here comes the lights behind us. Ding, ding, ding. And I went, oh, Jesus. And he looked at me, and he goes, we got a problem. I go, what? He goes, my license expired 12 years ago. I said, what? He said, yeah, but I think I can get out of it. And I go, oh, God. So I now he goes back, and JJ's MO was with the cops, that he would lean on the car and not let them out before they got out. So they'd have to roll the window down. He was talking to them this way. It's a great move. He did it every time. I don't know how he did it. And so he's talking to this cop, and I, I've, got the, I've got the mirror 
rearview mirror and I tilted it, I'm sweating like a dog because we're going to go to Mexican jail. I'm in Tijuana. This is not going to end well. And he's going like this and like this. And I go, oh, oh, oh. And he comes back in the car and he said, he go, hold on. And he gets out. And he's got his big gulp on the top of the car. And he grabs it and he takes a drink and toasts the cop. Okay? It's not good. Okay? And we're running late now getting to the first tee. So now the next thing, he gets in the car and he goes, hang on, we got an escort. I go, what the hell did you tell him? I said, well, this would be an international event because either you or I are going to win this event for their national opening golf. And if we don't get there in time, it is going to be on you, the cop. That's what he's telling the cop. So here we go through back roads and the sirens going and everything else. And we got there. And um, uh, so we get done. JJ, Jeff, the second, first hole Tijuana Country Club, Dog Lake to the right goes down. And the next hole comes up adjoining it. We go down the cart path on one and pulls right. I just about fall out of the cart. And he drives down and he goes down and it's a bar cart. It's a red single front wheel drive bar cart, you know. All of the, it's got all the wood in the back and the plywood and that stuff. And he gave him 50 bucks. And the red cart was never more than three feet. Wherever we went, the red cart was behind us. And JJ was plowed, plowed. He couldn't see. In fact, at the last three holes, he would get out and I'd have to club him. And I'm playing, I'm in the tournament. We can't give, can't give advice or anything. We'd get out and I'd walk by when he was fiddling through his bag. I go, seven iron, 180. And he would get out. I was reading his putts. I'd walk behind him, three feet out to the right downhill. And he ends up in a tie with Mark File. So we get done, and we're sitting there, and the tournament director comes up, and he goes, we're on the tee. Where's your buddy? I can't find him. Oh, God, hold on. So I run in the bar. He's got his face down on the bar. He's just gone. He's gone. He's out. So I, I told the guy, just give me 10 minutes, 10 minutes stall. So we get him coffee and everything else. He gets on the first tee. I'm catting for him now, the tournament. Catting for him. And he gets gets on the first tee. He takes his three wood out. He can't see the ground. And he hit the ball 20 feet. It's just, cold time. went 20 feet to the end of the tee. And he's laughing like, ah, how about that one, Mark? He gets up now. The hole's 360. He gets up, takes his three wood out gives it a mighty whack and hits it on the green. He just hit it from 340 on the green off the tee. It's old dog later, right? It rolled a long way, but he hit a 340 on the green. He went bogey, bogey, double bogey, and lost the Mexican Open <laughs> with a double bogey. Mark bogeyed the hole, and that was it. And then I had to drive him home in his Firebird. And we didn't get arrested that time, but we got really close. And that was Mexican Open, Tijuana Country Club. Well, <laughs> Those were the days. I thought he was going to kill me, but he never did. <laughs> and now, and now the tour is so corporate and different. Like uh, different. Yeah. <laughs> In those days, God Almighty, we were, <laughs> a con- we were having a conversation the other day. But well, basically, the tour now in in their reaction to live is is basically lining up like live is, and our tour. Started and, and it was top 60 for a long time when I came on the tour. And then um, 
I got the bright idea to do the all exempt tour. So I, I redid the tour, all exempt tour in 1986 to allow more guys to be able to play. Instead of 60, knowing where they're going, uh, we allowed 125. The number was 125. Um, if I can remember right, I, I did this in 86. It took me about seven weeks to do it. It, 68% of the tour were qualifiers. And no one, none of us could afford to go home. So we we're just, it was a Bedouin existence of guys going from one qualifying site to the next. We we're never allowed on the, on the site, uh, until tea off time. You couldn't go there Sunday. So we'd have to disappear somewhere and go. And, uh, and that was allowing the tour to become more socialistic and involving more players, uh, to be able to play on a consistent basis. And now they've basically, Jeff, as you know, they've redone it now. Now they're going back to 70. So the tour now, they're basically going back into the womb uh, and catering to the top guys, the top guys to counteract live. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting deal. Mike. What would be your advice to Monaghan to try to continue to uh, be the supreme tour in, in golf? Is, is it, is it even a worthy goal? What, what would be, what, Monaghan calls you, you, he says, Gary, been in this game a long time. What should I be doing? Well, I, he is he is he is very reactive, and he wasn't proactive, and that that's that that's a problem because now he's being dictated by um, um, by Liv on what he's doing. You can you can see what they're doing; they're doing the exact same thing Liv is. Um, Jay's in a precarious spot because the changes occurred when two guys outside of the system decided to have a meeting with 24 other guys that were in the system to change the system. When he's supposed to do that, he's the, he's the guy that's supposed to be leading the tour, the players, in a direction he thinks fit. So Tiger, <clears throat> Tiger and Rory come in, and they decide that they're going to go in, we're going to have elevated events, and we're going to have the top guys playing all the tournaments together and kill them with a, you know, a blunt force trauma, basically, uh, to counteract. Um, okay, that's fine. So far as decision-making has been from the players and not him and the board. That's an interesting because now you've got a dereliction of authority. Uh, the authority has now changed. It's transferred without really any meetings, anything going on. I found that interesting. Um, the next thing you've got is Monahan's Jay has got to, if, if this thing goes to court, which it is at this point going to go to court, um, I think you've got a seven to 10 year process. According to the other antitrust stuff that we've had, it is going to be laborious. And in this process is discovery. And if the discovery is anything which I think Lib is trying to push it to, and that is the tourist tax exempt status of a 501c6, where we're supposed to enter the year with nothing and then come out fire the next year and try to end with nothing uh, to get that status. Uh, there's a lot of money floating around that Phil actually said there was, and it came to being there's a lot of money being piled on. Now, I understand the media right kicked in they're getting 760 million a year from that uh through 2030 but in discovery there's going to be a lot of things that i don't think the tour wants the irs and doj to know about my opinion and if that comes out 
I think they're going to be flinching. If they lose their tax exempt status as a tour, they're in trouble. They're in serious trouble. Uh, you can't. It would be like, okay, I'm I'm a Scottsdale with Phoenix Open. Okay. Now the tour is redone. You've got to have an ownership like the NFL. Okay. So they somebody owns Thunderbirds own the uh, they they own the um, <clears throat> the golf tournament. So they got to pay all these guys now to show up at their golf tournament to come. Um, all the infrastructure has got to be paid for. Um, revenue they got to create themselves. They don't have any meteorite thing at this point. Um, volunteers, you got eighteen hundred volunteers. You got to pay them all. Whew. Wow, man! That, every week to do that, uh, that would be a nosebleed for the tour. And uh, I got to assume, I got to assume that the Saudis and Live are looking right at that in in this. Uh, in this litigation that's going to go on forever and it's going to get so monotonous and so litigious and it's the separation's already there it's the separation is huge it's like the san andreas broke open and it's going to get worse it's going to get worse and worse and worse so i don't, I don't like the direction it's going i hope that there is some calmer heads take over and everybody's allowed to live in the same not that live l-i-v-e live in the same in the same golf environment, and we have a world tour, which it already is anyway, but let's have a world tour. Let's have these guys want to play 25 events. Fine. Let's do 25 events at 25 million. DP, you get, you get, you get a bunch. The tour gets more. Um, uh, Latin America, you get some. Asian, you get some. A live, you get some. And let everybody play, and then there'll be a secondary tour under that. Um, and that's a feeder tour to get in. Uh, but the, we can't do that now. I'm pretty sure Liv would like to do that. But I don't think the guy running Liv right now is um, up to having a nice uh, a meeting of calmer minds. I just don't think that's going to happen why, why Greg's in that, that position. But I, I think that has, that has to happen. We can't have this thing go to court and sit in court for 10 years. It can do nobody good. Nobody any good. My opinion. Well, that that's an invaluable one because yeah, I don't, I'm not sure people recognize your role in creating the all exempt tour, and uh, so you've you've been following the 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 politics and the bureaucracy of this stuff for a super long time. So that that's definitely an interesting point of view. Um, right, before before we we send we send you off into the night, Gary. What, what's the best story that you've, you're sitting on? You've never told on the airwaves. Like, what's, what's one good thing you can give the listeners? This is your mic drop. Come on. I know we're putting you on the spot here, but you got to be sitting on some, some gold. A story. Sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> we're Charlotte. It is a humid, humid, hot day. Tarzan like. And it's a Saturday. And Tiger is in the second to last group and making a run. And out with Tiger is David Faraday on the ground. And so we're out there. Now, when we go to commercial break, everybody in the tower, director comes on and goes, Peter, are you there? And Peter's, yes. Gary, are you there? I go, what, what? Who's talking to? And then everybody's got their... Their signature saying to come on, okay, that I'm there. When they got to Faraday, Faraday's signature is, as you know, Jeff, 
Faraday is, is, he is enveloped in gas. Okay, he has a flatulence problem. And it is prolific how good he is and how he can coordinate flatulence to songs, to everything. So he puts the microphone down and he just pops one. That's, everybody knows. And now we don't, it's just, you hear that? Okay, David's here. Okay. But David did it this time and it went, and then it went, and he went, uh oh. So now he's on 15. And we go now and let's say, okay, let's, let's go now. Let's go back to 17. And I'm thinking, uh oh, what the hell was uh oh? So we go to the 16th tee and I'm looking. It's at, uh, it's at the camper there. And so Jeff, you know, it's just that straight, slight dog leg to the right part four. And I can, I can see the tee from my tower there. And I'm looking at him and he had khaki pants on when he started the round. And now I look down and he's got, he has got rain pants on. And I go, okay, this is good. So now get the binoculars, get it. So we've got binoculars up there. And, I, and he's walking off the tee and he is splay footed as hell. Okay. Looks like Weisskopf walking. Okay. Toes are going outward and he's walking down. I go, damn, he shit his pants. This is, it is hot. It is ugly. And he's with Tiger. So now we're sitting there. I'm watching him. I'm watching him. He goes in the trees on the right. He can't get anywhere because they're 20 deep, right? Watching Tiger. So he's over there. And the balls, the ball is a good 80 yards from where he is. And I go, David, I said, uh, I know you're down there looking at that lie. What's it look like? <laughs> and he, I look up and he gives me the finger. Okay. He's down in the middle of people and he gives me the finger. So I, I got him now. He knows that I know he shit his pants and he doesn't want to go anywhere. So <clears throat> get up and, and, uh, you know, he makes up something about the lie and he hits it about 15 feet. Okay. So David doesn't move. He's, he stays underneath the trees way back there. He doesn't want to walk for obvious reasons. So you get over this putt. Tiger's got about a 15 footer and he's kind of, he's kind of tiger walking around looking. And I go, David, I know you got down early and looked at this. Now, we've got the camera right behind the ball, and you could see it. It is, we've got what I, what I call worm cam. Then it's sitting on the ground looking. You can see the break, and it's a break of about five, six inches right to left. David goes, <laughs> he goes, yeah, I think this putt should go about three or four inches to the right. I said, really? Okay. And we, no, we had a picture of it. It goes right. He goes, oh, well, I didn't see that. So now we waddle off and we go play. He goes and plays 17 and 18. Now everybody now knows it, including Lance, our director, Lance Burrow. Verdi gets done and the compound is right above the green. It's only about 60 yards away. David gets done. Tiger putts out. David starts hauling up the hill. He's got to change his pants and everything else. Lance goes, David, hold it. Stay there and get an interview from Tiger. <laughs> so we go to commercial break. And the cameraman locks it on. There's three of them. And he's got, and David, David is on one side. Tiger's in the middle and Stevie Williams is on the other. So we keep the camera on and we keep, and they take the commercial off of our air feed and we're watching this and we're sitting there. We're wondering when Tiger is going to say something. So we go and the next thing you hear is Tiger. Now Tiger hates to do interviews, hates it, doesn't want to stay around and do any of these interviews. 
especially if he's got to wait. David, how long we got to get out of this commercial? David, Lance, Lance, uh, Tiger wants to know how long before we're down here. It was 45 seconds. Ah, Tiger goes, yeah, 45 seconds. All right, all right. So they shut down again, and the commercial's going. And Tiger, you see him go, Jesus, God, Stevie, what? I, said, I didn't do anything. And he turns to David, and he's, his head's swerving like this, going around, and David meets him. His head goes this way. He says, I shot myself on 15. <laughs> Tiger goes, what? And he jumps out of the way. He jumps backwards away from it. And now Lance goes, let's go down to David. He's got Tiger Woods. Tiger's, he's running away from him. David's got the mic. He's trying to get an interview. His pants are full of crap. And Tiger and Stevie are running like hell. He can't get the interview. And it was, it would, it looked like the Three Stooges out there. It really did. So that's, that's a story behind the scenes of David shitting his pants uh, on a hot day with Tiger in an interview. And Tiger smelled it. And it was really bad. <laughs> yes, really bad. So that's the way television goes. I'm not sure if I'm glad you told that story or not, but it, it's out there. Yeah, exactly. He wanted a story. <laughs> so that's a story. I use that in a lot of speeches. I can go 20 minutes on that. Uh, can I offer a quick addendum to that story as it relates to uh, Gary's uh, former colleague, longtime CBS newsman, Walter Cronkite. You ever meet him, Gary? I, I did not, but Frank Cherkinian was his on-set director at CBS uh, in news with Walter well, Cronkite. He- and that's one. When did, when did Walter die? Uh, I, 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 there's a certain age that I can't yeah. uh, I, I would I, guess mid late. I'm 80s. old, but not that old. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know him. But no, anyway, I never the, got to this. Meet this him. were his CBS newsman Walter Cronkite's uh, three rules of life, as it relates to this conversation: uh, never trust a fart, never turn down yeah. a drink, and never ignore yes. an erection. <laughs> uh, that would be uh, yeah, yeah. From speaking for old announcers, yeah, that would be a pretty good credo to look by. Yes. <laughs> Clearly, it's time to end this podcast. Um. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Gary, you've been a great sport. Thank you. Thank you for your time um, and all, all the stories. Jeff, any, any parting words for your, your former um, pigeon out at, at Whisper Rock? No, no, that was great. Magic, thank you. Um, I've heard most of them before, but it's always good fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll, uh, he'll give me he'll give me five aside, and I can't beat him. And so that's it. When are you getting back to the line? soon? A few weeks, probably. Jeff, so uh, around the open sometime. So we'll see okay, you. Cool. Bring okay. the t- bring your twenties. Okay. You got it. See you out there. Well, that was a journey. <laughs> yeah, you just got to push play, right? <clears throat> you just got to ask one question, and you get whatever you want from Gary. He's uh, but I tell you, he's. Nobody is more passionate and enthusiastic about golf and the tour and the whole sport. And um, most guys who grew up and played in his era would, uh, those traditional guys, right? They're like Metal Spikes and Persimmon Woods and Balladas. It was so much better in my day. But he is not like that at all. He embraces every era as it comes along. He just froths on golf every day of the year. Yeah, he's fantastic. And his story, he's got more stories and he's. He's found, he's he's had this magnetism for the characters that have played golf in the last fifty years. He's always hanging around the characters, Mac O'Grady and John Jacobs and um 
does magic tricks in the bar and yeah, he's an entertainer. He's fantastic. I, I miss I miss him on the airwaves too. He just he made it fun, as he was saying. I mean it's it's supposed to be fun. It's an entertainment product. And it, of course it's serious and it, it's meaningful, but the viewers at home want to be entertained. I, I always thought he was great at it. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We don't get more of him. And he also showed it. And uh, I've been reminded of this occasionally over the years, but you didn't see it on TV. Really? He's got a lot of moves in this game. I mean, he played obviously at a really high level or he would not have won in the tours where he won. And of course he's a, he's a wonderful storyteller and he's, he's known everybody and appreciates people who aren't really famous in the game, like a John Jacobs, but then when he got in the weeds of talking about, you know, the, the, the money and, and live PJ tour and how it relates to the 125 versus the 60 or the other way around, you should probably say it. He's got a really sharp mind and a really big grasp, but it's, it's interesting to hear him describe himself as, as dyslexic, but you know, with that dyslexia often comes a lot of creativity and, and interesting ways of looking at things. And, uh, it's neat. It was neat to listen to him, all these different move, moves that he has. Honestly, Just I love to hang out with Mac for 12 hours straight. Takes a <laughs> yeah. yeah, Mac O'Grady. Uh, I mean, I actually love his idea for, for telecasting live events. Like that would, that would be a major improvement because now they're trying to do it like the tour does it, but just, it's not, they're not doing it as well, you know, but like to completely blow up the whole medium. I mean, a, a, a McCord, Faraday, Charles Barkley. I mean, it, it's guaranteed to be entertaining. It, Didn't uh, reflect well on Greg Norman that that I that Greg Norman couldn't take twenty minutes to hear Gary McCord out. Guy who's got thirty five years in TV to hear what would you do with your TV broadcast? It's wild. I don't know. I would I would spend the thirty minutes listening to him. Uh, I mean that yeah that could be a game. Oh, it'd be great. I mean, if you put a camera on. Keep bringing up Whisbrock, but he's a member. He's the he's in the gates every day at Whisbrock. But if you watch the golf on the weekend at Whisbrock, and you just put a table on, you put a camera on the table where he was sitting and a few of the other guys, that's way more entertaining than what we get on TV. It's and it's it's how we all watch golf, right? Don't we sort of want to hear intelligent, loose, fun chat about what's going on? We don't need to tell someone the guy just hold the six footer because we just saw it with our own eyes. Just give us some conversation over the top. That's real fun. Um, it would be fantastic entertainment, even if it was non-official, you know, you could like the Manning thing, you could just put a camera on experts and let them talk about it. It'd be fantastic. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, <laughs> um, Gary McCord. What a guy. Um, he also strikes me as someone who's got, no plan for the day. He's going to wake up and see what the day brings. Is my impression. Is that would that be about it, right, Jeff? That's pretty true. Yeah, he's always he just he gets excited about things. Like if you present him with something, yeah, he wakes up. What's going to happen now? And someone presents him with something, or if his phone rings and someone calls him with something interesting, interesting things just happen to him. Mm -hmm. um, or he turn he makes them interesting. They happen to all of us, but he he grabs the thread and takes it and makes it interesting uh he'll turn up to he'll turn up to the golf club with this manuscript of some sort of golf machine guy who's done a thesis on the golf swing from a physics perspective and it'll be this binder with all this loose leaf stuck in it that's 400 pages and he'll be going through it saying see max said this was true too and this guy scientifically proved it and, and then the next day he'll be coming down with some prototype he was sort of connected with bob parsons a little bit at the time when he started pxg and like, why can't i make illegal equipment like i just want the ball to go as far for everyone as i can and he gets involved in equipment 
um, he, he'll advise and mentor like and play with all the young sort of young up and coming tour players at Westbrook. Yeah, he does it all. He just uh, he's a really fun guy to hang around, and that sort of enthusiasm is contagious. I love it. Well, certainly a lively podcast. All right. This was another new to fourth. Uh, we'll keep, we'll keep doing these. We have some other very fun, interesting guests coming up. So um, for now, I'm Alan Shipnock. That was Jeff Ogilvie and Michael Bamberger. And of course, the one and only Gary McCord. Thank you for listening. And uh, that's it. That's the end. Oh my God, there's a dangerous group here. <laughs> This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average. Plus, it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.